Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Cullen, Deirdre, all the sorrows grow on your wail. From giants right down to fairies, of both the trooping and solitary, and close to us, sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, Merrow Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm. Fireside. Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each week on Fireside, we take a story from mythology or folklore, we retell it and we have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, culture and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olahan and I am your host and your Fireside Bard. Episode 4. Look at that. Here we are. Episode 4. We are well and truly running, hopefully anyway. Um... If you've listened to us before, welcome back and thank you for for continuing to listen. If you haven't listened to this before, why don't you uh, check out episode one? Gives a, I think, is a good palate cleanser and gives a background to this to this podcast and everything. Um, but we're on episode four. I'm incredibly excited. We are back to the myths. So in episode two, we started off at the beginning of the mythological cycle with uh, with the story of the coming of the Tuatha Dé Danann, very much the beginning of Irish mythology. And now we continue that today with the reign of Brez and the unfortunate reign that it was. Let's get down to our second look at Irish mythology with the reign of Brez on Fireside. <laughs> The Reign of Brez After the first battle of Makhtura, where the Tua de Danan defeated the Fearbulgs, Nuda, their king, was dethroned. He had had his arm cut off by Sreng of the Fearbulgs, and it was in the laws of the Tua de Danan that no one who was not perfect could serve as their ruler. Nuda was replaced by Brez, who was a powerful warrior and the most beautiful of all of the men of the year. As beautiful and formidable in battle as he was, Brez's reign as king would be plagued with misfortune. There was once a race of giants called the Fomor. They were the most gruesome and terrifying people to ever set foot in Ireland. Each of them was maimed, each having only one foot or one hand often. The Fomor came from beyond the sea, or some say beneath the sea and westward, they actually settled in Ireland at one point, but had a peaceful relationship with the Fearbulgs, and so were happy to leave the country to them. But the Fomor were jealous of the Tua de Danon, so they imposed a great tax on them, demanding a third of all corn, milk and children that came from Ireland. If these demands were not met, another war would ensue. Brez was indeed a great fighter, but his people had suffered casualties in the battle against the Fearbulgs, and he was reluctant to start another war, so he met the demands of the Fomor. Despite his motives, the heavy taxation of his own people did little for Brez's popularity. 
Another big problem with Brez was that he was scabby and absolutely zero crack. This was something the Tua de Danon could not abide. Whenever visitors would stay at the house of Brez in Tara, they would never have their swords sharpened and shined, their beds would be uncomfortable, and he wouldn't even give them pints. Not even pints. Nor was there ever call for poets or musicians or clowns, none. Even Ogma, who was one of the greatest poets of the Tua de Danon, was reduced to collecting firewood on a daily basis. So high taxes, no pints, zero crack. That was the way under Brez. But one day, a poet named Corpra, son of Atain, the sun goddess, was travelling through Tara and asked for lodgings at the house of Brez. Brez accepted, but put Corpra in a tiny room with no bed or furniture and only fed him three stale cakes on a tiny plate. The next morning, Corpra left. He was hungry, cold, with backache from lying on the floor and having not slept a wink. So Corpra said to anyone who would listen, I'll tell you something about Brez. He hasn't enough food to feed a baby, nor milk enough to feed a calf, not a bed to lie in, and not a fire to sit by, not even money to pay a storyteller to ease all the misery. That's who we have for his king. And, I heard, he ran away and left his wife for a young one. This may not seem like the most damaging thing to a king, but that just so happened to be the first satire in Ireland. This was the first time someone held up the actions and behaviour of a supposedly higher individual and openly ridiculed them. Satire would become one of the greatest fears of kings and queens and elected officials for years to come, and for Brez, it was the beginning of his downfall. For Nuda, the former king of the Tua de Danon, wasn't done yet. After his arm was cut off and he was removed from power, he went into the care of Dien Kekt, the god of healing. Dien Kekt healed all of the cuts and wounds on Nuda's body, but he didn't stop there. Dien Kekt made an arm of silver that could move at the elbow, the wrist and the fingers and attached it to Nuda. This is when Nuda became known as Nuda Argetlov, Nuda of the silver arm. It is also considered the world's first prosthetic limb. Dian had a son named Mich, who followed in his father's path and also became a healer. But Mich became a far superior healer to Dian Once a soldier who had lost an eye in the battle with the fear bullocks approached Mich and said, Can you make me an eye to replace the one I've lost? So Mich got the eye of a cat and put it in the soldier's eye socket, and the soldier could see with both eyes once more. Unfortunately, the eye remained a cat's eye, and whenever the soldier would try and sleep, the cat's eye would wake and look around whenever it heard the sound of mice or birds. Still pretty impressive. No one knows what happened to the cat who had the eye taken off him. Having seen what his father had done for Nuda, Mirk thought he could do better. He returned to the site of the Battle of Makhtara and found the arm that Nuda had lost. He brought it to the former king and spent three days and three nights by his side. The first night he put the hand against his side, the second night against his breast, until it was covered with skin once again. And finally he took bulrushes that were blackened by the fire and laid them on the arm. And by the end of the third night, Nuda's arm was healed. Dian Kekt was disgusted. 
He was torn apart by jealousy of his own son's superior healing power to his own. And in a fairly shocking turn, the Ankecht took a sword and threw it at Miak's head. But it only cut to the flesh, which Miak could easily heal. The Ankecht threw another sword, which reached the bone. Miak healed that too. So the Ankecht began hacking away at his son's head until he cut out his brain. Not even Miak could heal that. And he died. From then on, no one dared show superior healing power to the Ankecht. The rest of the Tour de Danon were distracted by this horrendous feat of filicide, by the fact that Nuda was complete once more, and so he could be reinstated as king. They went to Tara and demanded to Brez that he step down. Brez had no choice. He stood up from his throne and left Tara, but he swore revenge on the Tour de Danon. Nuda stepped on the Leofall and was proclaimed king once again. Brez immediately began to plot his revenge. He would raise an army and take back his throne by force. The only problem was, where was he going to get such an army? He knew none of the Tua de Dan would fight for him over Brez, and he had killed too many of the fear bullocks for them to follow him. As it happened, Brez had never known his father. His mother, Eri, had refused to ever tell him who his father was. But on the day he was removed as king, Brez went to his mother and said, Ah, I've had a rough day. I got the sack, and now I need to raise a massive army to take back my throne. Trouble is, I haven't got any mates. So could you do me a massive favour and tell me who my dad is? Eri looked at her son. All right, I suppose it's time you knew. Your father is a king. Oh, fantastic, interrupted Brez. Of the Fomor, continued Eri. Ooh, said Brez, and he didn't speak again until Eri had finished. The Fomor are an ugly, beastly race, but your father was beautiful. He sailed across the sea on a ship made of silver. I saw him emerge through the mist. He had yellow hair, and his clothes were sewn with gold, and he had five gold rings across his two hands. I had refused the advances of every one of my people, but your father I loved. I was devastated when he left. But he said he was needed by his people. He never would have fit in here anyway, and I think he was ashamed to bring me to his own people. His name is Alathan, and he left me one of his rings to remember him by. If you go to the Fomor and present him with this ring, he'll know you're his son and you'll have your army. Eri handed the ring to Brez, and it fit him perfectly. Brez and his mother made their way to the shore where Lathan had landed, and from it sailed across the sea to the country of the Fomor. When they landed, they knew immediately they were in the right place, when they saw the gruesome sight of the people who inhabited it. They were undoubtedly the Fomor. Eri and Brez searched until they found a group of people who were the best looking. Those people asked them who they were, where they'd come from, and had they brought any dogs. This may seem like a strange question to ask out of the blue, but it was the custom at the time that when strangers came to a gathering, they should engage in a friendly challenge. So the two parties raced their dogs and their horses, and in every race the animals of the Tua de Danon bested those of the Fomor. 
so the Fomor drew their swords ready for a fight. And Brez stepped in between the Fomor and his own mother and went to draw his own sword. But as his hand was on the hilt, his father, Elethan, emerged from the group and recognised the ring on Brez's finger. Who are you? And where did you get that ring? Eri stepped in front of Brez. His name is Brez, and he's your son. Elathan embraced his son and the estranged mother of his son and listened to their entire story. But what possible circumstance could have led you to being removed as king and chased out of your own country, he asked. Brez had to be honest with his father and himself. I was no crack. I was a terrible, boring and miserable host and I imposed taxes on my own people who had never been taxed before. So why have you come here? To raise an army so that I might take back my throne and be the king I should have been all along. Well, no, said Elathan. What? said Brez. Why not? You have absolutely no right to win back by injustice the country you couldn't keep by justice. The Fomor may not be the best looking bunch, but we fight with honour. So what do you suppose I do? I don't know, said Elathan. This goes beyond me. We need to go to the king. I thought you were the king. I am a king of the Fomor. We need to go to the chief king, Baylor. Baylor? Yes, Baylor of the Evil Eye. So Alathin led his son to the throne of Baylor of the Evil Eye to see what counsel, advice, and aid he would give. To be continued. So that is the story of the reign of Brez. It's, uh, I said previously, there is no creation myth in Irish mythology. As far as they're concerned, the world always was. And that's really interesting for a number of reasons. Like, I think most of all is is that these gods, the Tua de Danann, that they were invaders themselves, but they were just the invaders who started the line the dynasty and the line that we that follows through the rest of mythology and what leads us right up to today, pretty much. Uh, so that's just why we start there. But in terms of the first story, the story of the the first battle of Makhtera, as it is, it's very much, you know, they arrive, they're cool, they battle with the fear bullocks, they take over, and we introduce, we're introduced to a few interesting players. But it's this story, it's the story of the reign of Brez, um where I really think the true humour and messed up nature of Irish mythology really comes into focus. And that, of course, is with the story of Nuda's arm. First of all, it's incredible that, like, for this to have happened, for these two stories to have come from thousands of years ago, to have this story of this silver arm, that's such an incredible image. But then just Dean Caked. Again, I always I will give a disclaimer as long as I before I feel comfortable with my pronunciations. Um, I apologize to any Irish speakers or any folklore or mytho- mytho- mythological experts for my awful pronunciation. I hope I hope they're an approximation or uh, at least I'm not committing a horrendous crime. Uh, but Dean Kicht and his son Mick for 
I mean, obviously, sons and fathers being jealous of each other, particularly fathers being jealous of their sons, is is all over mythology, especially in Greek and Norse. So it's no, it's no strange sight to see it here. But my God, the brutality of it! For to him to hack away until like he destroyed his brain. He literally used zombie tactics, zombie defeat tactics, thousands of years ago, which is just incredible. And that like. There is such a natural uh, absurdity and humor to that brutality that is spread all throughout Irish mythology and is really where you go, we have something unique here. We have something special that to have to have something like that um, and for him to to be able to recreate from to be able to recreate Nuda's arm from scratch and for him to be perfect once more. And then poor El Brez. Brez is interesting because in the first first story, Brez is very much a hero. He's the one who goes to meet with the Fear Bullocks first. He's he's kind of their best hero, and he's the most beautiful of them. There's the phrase as beautiful as Brez, which makes sense when we hear about his father being beautiful as well, being the beautiful member of an ugly race of people. Um But for his race to be plagued by misfortune. And we get we get the nugget of it being the first satire in Ireland when the poet Corpora comes to the house. He's not put up well, so he decides to satirise Brez by giving him a slag. This is this is really important. Um, not just because I'm just an enormous fan of satire. Like Satire would be something I'd want to dedicate my career to. I think it's more important now than it's ever been. Um, and it's obviously a huge staple throughout throughout Irish comedy um, of us just holding things up and just of comedy in general, but like particularly in the in the bite and the darkness of Irish comedy. And it's amazing to see it rooted right here. I'm I will obviously in great detail um, talk about the thorn and about the Cucullan myth. But one thing I will talk about now, just to kind of give a, a background of 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 how terrifying this fear of satire was, to my understanding anyway. So basically, when, when Ireland would have been divided into hundreds of individual kingdoms and lordships thousands of years ago, like, what was what was keeping you in your place of power, of your place of little power, was that everyone respected you. Because at the end of the day, like, you're always just one person. And the idea of a monotheistic, uh, monotheistic religion really aids to that you know obviously for hundreds and hundreds of years you look at the the english monarchy particularly there's that there's that joke of uh, do you think that the british royal family just sit around at dinner every night and go can you believe that we're still getting away with this because we've passed through hundreds of years and a really handy out always when it comes to monarchy is that they're god appointed and that fear throughout history over the past hundreds of years the fear that they are God-appointed, that is what has protected monarchs and protected terrible monarchs. And it hasn't even always. Even like even in a time where 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 it wasn't really up to up for debate whether or not God existed, monarchs were still deposed and they were still murdered. And it's amazing, like then they just got around the idea by saying, oh well, I guess. I guess we were wrong. I guess they weren't God appointed, and it's this deposer who is the new God appointed 
monarch. But that was that was the thing that was protecting them the most, was that they were God-appointed and that they had the respect and fear of everyone as a result of that. If you go back to Ireland, to loads of little individual huts and kingdoms, you know, of course you may believe that this leader, this this small small-time king that you have is in some way empowered like really all that was keeping them in place was you respecting them or you fearing them so for someone to come along for a poet to come along and say actually he's a bit rubbish or to say it was it was so dangerous because like all it takes is for someone to to ridicule someone for the rest of the world for the rest of the kingdom to go oh my god yeah you're right god they're rubbish aren't they and then that just leads on and then that will lead to their downfall. So it's, this is really, it's great that we have like this, this story, like, like the majority of the ones that I'll be talking about from mythology, certainly, certainly the entire mythological cycle I'm drawing from Lady Gregory's Complete Irish Mythology uh, book written, Gods and Fighting Men is the, is the book within a book of this, um, it was written about, I, I said it in episode two, I think, um, written about 1896 or something. Uh, it's really good, but it is dense and you're very much written and then this happened and then this happened. So I very much adapted it, but as faithfully, this, my adaptations of the myths will be probably more faithful to the material I'm drawing them from than the folktales because the folktales can go off on a tangent, whereas like, obviously the, the myths sprinkle down and uh, details that I establish will become because they're all over the place and there's different rules and different people are different brothers and different sisters and this person's this person's son but maybe they're this person's son I'm going to for the most part try and have some through line it won't be obviously it won't be the gospel through line but it will be my through line um, and this is this is from the book two of that of the reign of Brez is its own mini book. So that that is something that, being the first satire in Ireland, that's something that's mentioned by Lady Gregory in that book. And I think it's so interesting that she does. Because, um, so when it comes to the Thawne, so the the best version of the Cúchulain myth that we have at the moment of the Cattle Raider Cooley and Queen Maeve, uh, the gospel still very much is Thomas Kinsella's adaptation in the late 60s, early 70s, he, I don't think a lot of people realize how much how much he really did for that story. Um, he was the first person to call it the Thorn. That's that's his doing, and it kind of seems outrageous. It's like the mixing of of the English word the and putting it with the Irish word Thorn. Thorn the Thorn means just the raid, but apparently a Thorn is also. As it being applicable to a cattle raid, uh, it is also considered like a, a gathering of people, a, ga- a gathering of of clans. I need to relook that up in that before I'm contradicted too much. Um, and so it actually is applicable in double sense in terms of it being this gathering of this of these armies and the gathering of this epic story into one into novel form, basically. So Thomas Kinsey very much still the 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 kingpin of that, but in a more recent edition, the Penguin Classics edition that was written, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago maybe, by a guy named Kieran Carson. So it's the most recent edition you can have 
that I found anyway. It's the Penguin Classics of it. It's really good. It's 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 probably not too dissimilar to Kinsella's. He says that very much that like he wrote it when he was writing this adaptation. He would constantly check back and f- he he initially wanted to not look at Thomas Kinsella's version at all, understandably to to stand on his own two feet. But he found himself incapable of looking back every now and then and he kept being astonished to find that they'd used similar words or phrase sentences in a similar way. And why shouldn't they? Because, like like I said, like these stories should be, they should be your own version of them and they should be the best version that you think. But if there's a plot detail or a way of saying things that you can't think of a better way to say it that is just the best way of saying it, why wouldn't you keep to that? But in his introduction... Kieran Carson talks about how we don't know where the story was first collected, where like the origins of where just suddenly everyone started talking about the tone, like like this complete story. But he talks about a story of uh, that there was this lord or king around Ireland, and that there was these traveling, there was these traveling group of of poets, of poets who would travel from town to town, kingdom to kingdom, and no one ever dared refuse them accommodation and all the drink and all the women and all the men that they wanted for fear of satire. That that was there. And this, when I read this, this is incredible. This is essentially like biker gangs, like pirates, but they're all poets and their, their weapons are not, their weapons are not their swords or, guns or anything their weapons were their words was their was their humor and that's that's incredible uh, that they had they were able to wield that power uh, over people who were supposed to be so far above them but there was one instance apparently where this group of poets came to this to this king and he had to put them up and he was giving them all the food and all the drink and eventually one of his lords said, listen, like, we're putting these up and they are poets. So, you know, we should really be getting something out of this arrangement. And so the king thought about that and he said, yeah, actually. So the king went to the poets and he said, OK, I've put you up. I've given you everything you wanted. We've had a great party. Now I want you to tell me the entire story, start to finish, of the cattle raid of Cooley. And all of the all of the poets looked at each other because that was that was such an expansive story. It was with so many different characters involved and spanning over such a long period of time that the idea of having it in a beginning, middle and end form was was really shocking to all of them. So all of them left the left that king that day and they went off their separate ways to all the corners of Ireland trying to find from as many sources as they can the beginning, middle and end of this story and they literally apparently they did write it they wrote it down on on cattle hide and there are some obviously incredibly old and incredibly destroyed but there is still some physical evidence of this of this being written down um, in those first versions, which is mind-blowingly cool, and just this idea, yeah, and just this idea of of satire being this great weapon, I I think it's never more exemplified than it is there. And so when I saw it, 
in this story of Brez, it really just hammers home what, what a threat it was. And I love that. I love that the Irishman's greatest weapon being his being his humour, people's human's greatest weapon, or a great weapon being humour is class, and we should have loads of that. What else have we done? Oh, we we haven't talked about the four more, sorry. So, so yeah, Brez gets demoted, and he wants to find his father, and the Fomor being this, this ugly, giant race of gruesome people, and the idea of him having this really handsome father and going over to raise this army is great. And it will culminate it will culminate in another battle quite soon, as you may as you may gather. The next story, we're gonna do it a folktale next episode. But when we return to the mythology the week after, the next myth that we get to is it's probably my favourite of the early of the early myths of the mythological cycle. And that is the story of Lou. And Lou is the man. I can't wait to tell you all about him. To, to give a slight context of those who don't know, two things I will tell you about him. He's where Lunasa comes from, our word for August and the festival of Lunasa. That's an entire summer festival dedicated to just this lad. And he is also supposed to be the father of Cucullan. So that gives a, a bit of background to how this is not a man and wait till you see his introduction I'm very excited to tell you all about it but I think I think I might wrap it up there so thank you very much for listening I really hope you enjoyed it um, I look forward to talking to you again in the next episode when we're going to have another folktale we're going to have a great one um, <laughs> which uh, has a great title to begin with the next story we're going to look at is called The Man Who Had No Story there's definitely an argument that I should have started with that, but I'm happy with having had the first story be of Phil McCool and the Giants Causeway. Okay, I'll go on before I ramble anymore. But thank you so much. Thank you so much again to the Headstuff Podcast Network. Oh, I didn't say that at the beginning. Yes, I'm delighted to be here at the beautiful studios of the Headcast Head Headstuff Podcast Network. Sorry. Uh, I adore coming in here every week and recording this podcast. I'm having the most fun. I'm having the most fun preparing for it and the most fun doing it. And I hope that you're enjoying enjoying them as well and we can continue on. So I will talk to you next time. Have a great week and I'll see you next time around the fireside. Goodbye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.